Welcome to the November episode of ONP Rising, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Ariel Fortenberry, a prosthetics resident at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. With me today is Tiffany Graham, MSPO, CPO, LPO, FAAOPD, an associate professor at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Tiffany is an active member of the profession. She serves as treasurer of the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists Board of Directors and as the chair of the organization's research committee. Tiffany is also a member of the Academy's Craniofacial Scientific Society. Welcome to the podcast, Tiffany. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Me too. I'm excited to have you join me today to discuss part two of last month's ONP Rising podcast, The Publication Process, Putting Your Best Foot Forward. In part one, we discussed how students, residents, and clinicians have a vast array of experiences that we can all learn from, and sharing these experiences with the profession through publishing their findings is a great way to give back to the profession. This month, we are continuing this discussion, focusing on other opportunities to disseminate research besides publications and the many avenues that are generated from being published. Tiffany, since you have a multitude of experience with both types of avenues or all types of avenues, I'm excited to speak with you to learn more. To start, besides formal publications, which we discussed last time, how have you shared your research and what are some pros and cons of each kind of avenue? Thank you. I'm excited to start the discussion off with just talking about posters and different conference presentations that I've done in the past. And it's a great opportunity for you to disseminate research or even just clinical findings sometimes. I typically do about one to five podium presentations or that style of presentation per year in recent years. And some of my earliest podium presentations or conference presentations date back to right out of residency or even sometimes in my residency, I did a couple of in-services, which you may consider a podium presentation. It's a very similar type of situation. So I want to talk a little bit about venues for presentations that are along those lines. Podium presentations are generally at different conferences. You might have an in-service, a meeting, state, local, national, international meeting where you actually send in a abstract of what you would like to talk about. And then it is peer reviewed and the conference organizers decide whether or not that is appropriate for your conference and accept or reject your presentation. So if they accept your presentation, awesome. You have a new venue in which to present. If not, that just means you need to work on it a little bit and maybe that's not the right conference for that audience. Uh, there are also poster presentations where you create a poster of the work that you've done or the case study and you do a physical printout Sometimes there's a video to go along with it, like a poster pitch, but oftentimes it's just the straight poster. And we can do that at all different levels, as far as local to international. The pros of podium presentations is that they're typically a wider audience than a poster presentations. Poster presentations usually have people walk up and view maybe 10 to 30 posters at a time and they read your poster. And then podium presentations, you may have an audience as small as maybe 10 or 15 or as large as 1,000. 
very easily at national or international conferences. And that's a really strong recognition of your work. But I also want to share a really quick story about one of my earliest podium presentations was actually right out of residency. It was, I was a year out and I was presenting at the Hangar Tech Summit. What we actually did is there were a bunch of technicians that were learning about different opportunities. And I talked about why we would or would not do different variations on AFOs, like sablitch trim lines, different straps. And so explain to the people who are working on all of our projects and helping to design and create them, why we might clinically want those items incorporated. Of course, the downside to presenting is it can always be intimidating. And there is Q&A time. It is always nerve-wracking, even for me, with as many presentations as I've done, to wonder what the audience is going to ask of me and what questions they may have about the work I've done. It's also not quite as easy to reference or cite your work if you do a podium presentation versus a publication, but it's still a fantastic venue. Yeah, I know when you do presentations, usually it's like the last slide or two. It's like, here are my references, and you have two seconds to look at 50 references that you have listed. Yes, absolutely. Uh, poster presentations can be a really good venue, especially to start out, because a lot of times you don't have to be there live. Sometimes you do. It depends on the situation. But sometimes you just have a printout. Other times you're actually there talking about your poster as people walk by. I've done at least 11 posters to date. And my earliest was actually a residency project. Basically, my only experience presenting research has been at our MPO research presentations here at UT Southwestern. And then I've seen you present at Capra, which is something that we host here as well. But like how, I guess what you mentioned the process of applying to present. Can you go into more detail about that? Absolutely. The process is similar if you're looking at a regional conference or a state conference or national or international conferences. Local may be completely different. So you mentioned CAPRA and the master's presentations that we do at UT Southwestern. Those don't necessarily have a formal application process. CAPRA is a particular research symposium that we have that people who have been awarded a certain grant through the university are asked to present. So it's an invitation only. We don't actually apply for that, but we are invited to present. The application process was to get the grant. For our master's presentations, it's just a presentation of what all of the students did throughout the year. But we also have a local group called the Women in Science and Medicine, and that is still within our university. But that is an application process where I would present what I would like to do in a poster as a short abstract. And they review it and decide whether or not they want the poster displayed at their event, which is held once a year. When you're talking about local conferences like that, there are a lot of benefits. First off, there's typically minimal to no travel costs because it's right in your area or you might travel within an hour to get there. Usually, and I say usually, there is easier acceptance to those conferences 
But sometimes you have a hundred different people applying for 10 slots. So it can be very different. But usually what I have found is local is a little bit easier to present. And it's a great place to start, especially if you're intimidated about presenting your research. You can get questions more local to you before you travel somewhere to do a larger presentation. Some of the disadvantages of doing local presentations or posters is that your research and your work is not as widely recognized. It's just locally recognized. And oftentimes it's to your immediate peers who have already learned a little bit about the project just from talking to you. However, there could be a wider audience depending on the venue. For example, one of the places I've presented on the state level is the Texas Podiatric Medical Association Southwest Foot and Ankle Conference. So even that's a state level conference, which was very close. It was just down the street from us within about a 30 minute drive. It had an audience that I had never seen and never spoken to because it's podiatrist as opposed to the OMP profession in particular. But I've also presented at the Texas State OMP meeting. You can always look at state level or regional level. Some states group together in their conferences as academy chapters, maybe a, a multiple state conference. The benefit of going at the state level is that it is typically a drivable distance, although if you're in Alaska, California, or Texas, it may not be as drivable as other places. And you get really good recognition at the state level. It looks great on your resume. But again, the disadvantage is that you don't have quite as broad of an audience as you would have at larger meetings. But this is a great place to start and get your feet wet in presenting or doing a poster. Yeah. Did you find that presenting to podiatrists was more intimidating than presenting to OMP professionals? Absolutely. I had no idea what they were going to ask me. I'm sitting here talking about the OMP side of treating Charcofoot, and they have way more medical knowledge than I have about it and have seen probably more varieties of patients than I have because I see the ones that need an orthosis. They see the surgical cases. They do the surgery. I, I was afraid that they were going to ask me a lot of details. How did you decide to present there? I was actually asked by one of our physicians at UT Southwestern. I work with him very closely, and he works on the committee for the Texas Podiatric Society. And he was looking for an OMP-specific presentation. They like to do a little bit of that every year because their physicians, of course, do have a huge knowledge base, but sometimes they're not as up-to-date on some of the orthotic options that can happen. That's really cool. You mentioned you were invited, and then sometimes you have to apply to present. What would you say the ratio is between applying to present and then when meetings reach out to you and ask you? That's a fantastic question. Especially early on in your career, you're going to be applying everywhere. For the most part, unless someone on a conference planning committee or a physician that's particularly looking for something, they are probably not going to reach out to you because they don't know you yet. So you'll need to apply to different places. But the state level and local conferences are a great way to start with that and to see what is the magic sauce of trying to get your abstract accepted. 
Yeah, you mentioned national and international events that you have presented at. Are those also an application process or do people reach out to you and ask? Yes, most of those have been an application process. The international groups that I've worked with, there are some that I know very well. For example, being very strong in cranial and having worked with Ortho America for years and years, they put on an international star summit conference. And that is star band users from around the world. And because I know them, I can reach out to the conference planner and say, hey, are you looking for presentations? I can present on something like this. Then they send me the abstract form so that I can fill out a formal application. And it's still peer reviewed and they have to decide whether or not it fits for their conference. But in that case, a lot of times I will initiate presenting. However, for example, PO reached out to me to present because they had seen some of my publications in Cranial and they wanted a specifically clinical presentation. So not necessarily all the research that I've done, but something clinical to discuss cranial remolding in a worldwide setting because it's very different how the orthoses are regulated and made worldwide compared to the U.S. Really interesting. I think you also mentioned webinars. So talk a little bit about webinars and how those work. Is it the same process? I will certainly admit that prior to 2020, I don't think webinars were on my radar at all. We had our industry just completely hit and all of our continuing education moved online. And there were a lot of offerings because so many people were home and trying to still get work done, at least advance their career if they couldn't see patients for a short amount of time. Through that, what I found is I can actually have a much greater audience than I had ever anticipated. Because, for example, when I presented for ISPO, that would have been in Guadalajara, but I wasn't traveling at the time. And so that gave me an opportunity to present to clinicians worldwide. And surprisingly, I, I was worried about translation because when you're talking about an international audience and my primary language is English. I speak enough Spanish to be dangerous, but I certainly don't speak other languages and I can't talk for an hour completely in Spanish and be completely fluent. What was really neat with them is their conference was completely in English and they had a translator that actually was available to speak whenever I paused. And I did try to put on most of my slides words in English and Spanish. Google Translate is amazing. But I also had them take a look at my slides before the conference just to make sure that Google didn't do something weird in the translations and that everything made sense. Google is great, but sometimes it's the, the idioms or like the phrases that they don't get exactly right. But I was also able to present to the Australian OMP Association. And that's travel that I don't think I would be able to do with two young kids right now. That's a very long distance of travel. So that was really exciting to be able to have that wider reach through webinars. Yeah, I think our post-COVID world, webinars are both so easy and we love them, but sometimes we want that in-person interaction. So I think it's good to have a balance of, of both so you can get that in-person interaction 
which could be more intimidating to do a presentation in person, but also be able to reach a wide audience with webinars. Absolutely. Are there any other avenues that you know of that you haven't pursued yet? I'm sure there are. <laughs> I don't know exactly what I haven't seen yet, but I will say until last month, I had never done a podcast. So these are neat, different opportunities. And the main thing is to keep yourself open to the idea of something different. If the opportunity does present itself, for example, in services with local practices, when talking about webinars, recently worked with a group that we had an in-person presentation and then they zoomed in people at satellite locations. So it was actually a hybrid presentation. So it's always good to keep your eyes open and allow for those opportunities. So I've heard about organized sessions and free papers as potential ways of disseminating information but I'm not very familiar with those. What is the difference between those avenues? That's a fantastic question. And that's a question I get a lot from early professionals. Oftentimes, if they have not been to a lot of conferences, or even if they have, they'll wind up going into a session thinking it's going to be research-related and it's similar to research, but it's more clinically focused. I want to give a broad understanding of what an organized session is and know that there can be a whole lot of exceptions and a whole lot of ways it can go. An organized session is generally a situation where presenters have a similar topic, they're experts in their field, and they want to present or discuss something related to that topic. I've been part of research-related webinars, research-related organized sessions, or clinically-related organized sessions. Sometimes these are also very interactive. For example, you can have an organized session that was at an academy meeting a few years ago that was Jeopardy. And you have a panel of experts up on the stage and they're asking questions and trying to compete against each other to get the answer more quickly. And by doing that, you're still discussing the current research and current clinical topics but it's a very different type of presentation than what you would see in a free paper session. A free paper session is going to be generally more research related. They're gonna be very short presentations, usually between eight and 15 minutes with a multitude of different people presenting. And it's either gonna be a case study or a research project they did where they're going to go through the study design, what they found and their conclusions very quickly. So it's like a snapshot of current research, typically, or a really interesting case presentation. That's really helpful. I guess so like organized sessions, they can be more like panels and a little bit more laid back where the free papers are more like short, concise research presentations. Absolutely. So I do want to ask a few things of you, Ariel. Sure. You see yourself wanting to present or do a poster in the near future? I think it depends on what research avenues are available to me. If I'm doing research, I think I would love to present. I would rather present than write a manuscript. I usually don't have a problem talking to people, but when it comes to writing, I'm not a very strong writer, in my opinion. If I had the research to present, I think I would. Awesome. I hope to see you presenting soon. I will definitely encourage that. Thank you. So do you have any fears about it? 
Or are you just gung-ho? As soon as we have a topic, I'm going to do it. The normal fears about public speaking. Am I going to trip over my words? Am I going to say something wrong? Are people going to ask me really tough questions? I think those are the general fears, but not really any reservations. I talked to some of my classmates, and one of them actually has a question for you. So our field has historically been highly male-dominated, but there has been a shift since the implementation of the master's degree where more women are entering the field. Have you found this shift to have affected any positive or negative reception to publishing or presenting as a woman? There has definitely been a shift. I've seen a shift within my professional career in the past 15 years or so. It's been a huge shift. When I was entering into the master's program, I had come from a traditionally male-dominated field of engineering, and I was accustomed to seeing far more males than females. And I was actually surprised when I got into a class of 10 in school that was 50-50. It was five males, five females. And I didn't realize, having come from the engineering background, that was different until I started going to conferences and then realizing that we did still have a very male-dominated field. And that can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. I don't think it was either. I think it was great, but it was different than it is now. When I first started going to national meetings, I didn't see any women in the leadership positions. I didn't see very many women in the audience, and those that were in the audience were typically pediatric-focused. For whatever reason, that was the dynamic that I saw. But as I went through the years seeing conferences and the women in OMP started very much out of a necessity to have a group of individuals with similar characteristics to really bond together, it grew to be so much more than I could have ever imagined. And now it's actually very difficult to get enough male applicants for MPO programs from what we've seen at the university is we actually have quite a few more female applicants than male at this time. So I would say the shift is definitely there. And as far as relating to perception of publishing or presenting. I don't know that there's been any difference in publishing because my publishing has been fairly recent within the past couple of years. But definitely presenting, there are a lot more female presenters than I've seen in the past. And I think the field in general is just a lot more accepting of all sorts of differences moving forward. So I'm excited to see the diversity. Thank you. What opportunities do you now have because of your publication experience? One that has almost immediately was presented to me after I submitted my first publication manuscript was to start doing peer reviews for different journals. And I'll just put it out there that the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics is always open to peer reviewers. So if you feel like there is an area of OMP or a specialty that you have where you are very familiar with the research, it is a lot easier to look up studies that you are already somewhat familiar with. And so peer reviewing can be a really good opportunity for anyone to 
delve more into the research and see how other people have cited work. But peer reviewing is definitely an opportunity that I've pursued. And I believe I am now a peer reviewer for seven or eight different journals. So that's always a good opportunity. Also, if you review for the JPO, I'll just put it out there that you get a little bit of continuing education credit for your time reviewing. That's really good to know for us just finishing residency and becoming CPOs. And then for anybody who is listening that is a current CPO in need of CE credit. Another opportunity that I was actually very surprised to be approached for was the Journal Club. The Academy Journal Club reached out to me and said that they wanted to discuss one of my publications. And that honestly was quite intimidating. Coming in as an author and having people dissect your work and then being present, because this was actually at the Academy meeting, so it wasn't even on Zoom. It was in a room full of people who had read my article and were going to question me on it. That was quite intimidating, but that went really well, and I really enjoyed doing it. But that was a unique opportunity. I feel like that can be very nerve-wracking. Very much. I will tell you, I, I reached out to Tara Wright beforehand, and we, we talked a little bit because I wanted to make sure I wasn't blindsided by anything too much. But of course, there's always the opportunity to ask questions at the time. Yeah, because I know last podcast, you mentioned how one of the things that you're sometimes worried about when you publish is if your work is going to be misconstrued or taken out of context or something like that. But at least if you're there when people are asking you questions, if it is misconstrued, you can tell them, put it back into context and resolve any confusion over that. Yeah, absolutely. It was really nice to be there. Once we got going, I started feeling more comfortable with the questions because I just had to remember this is the work that I've been doing for several years. And I know the methodology because I did it. So I can explain my reasoning behind it and where I was going and my purpose just by thinking back to my initial motivation to start the study. And that was some of the questions that they had for me was, why did you do this? Why was this something to examine? And I'll be the first to admit that if there were any strong statistical questions, I just said, I talk with my biostatistician and I do what she recommends as far as the tests. I do understand what she does and I make sure that it's clinically relevant, but I definitely lean on her on the statistics side. Oh, you were mentioning other opportunities. Another opportunity that I was not expecting at all that came from the publication was this opportunity to present for the Australian OMP Association. That actually stemmed from a company in Australia reading about my publications, reached out to me and said, hey, we want to do research with you. And by the way, we know someone on the Australian OMP Association's planning committee, and we would love to do a webinar with them related to your research and various different studies that you've done in cranial. And so that was a real surprise to get that email out of the blue that all of a sudden my work had reached literally across the globe. That's awesome. So you mentioned working with your statistician and how you let them take care of all the stats. That leads me to something that kind of surprised me 
with going through the process of the study that we've done together and working on the manuscript where different people that are listed as authors have different roles within the study. Can you talk a little bit about what constitutes authorship and like what kind of roles somebody has to participate in the study to get authorship? That's another great question. Very much when we are deciding who has authorship in a project, it may strongly depend on the journal we're applying to. Each journal will typically ask for a paragraph in the submission process that explains what author did what in the manuscript. What was their role? And if someone only did a few things, it may not constitute authorship. Even if those were critical things, it may have been not necessarily working on the manuscript itself. So when I decide who gets authorship for my studies, I look at how much work did they contribute and where did they contribute? Did that contribution directly lead to the ability to write the manuscript? If they might have been associated with the study but did not influence the manuscript itself, it's a little bit hard for me to constitute authorship, but I might do an acknowledgement. So I might say, thank you so much for this opportunity. We had a data use agreement with your company, that sort of thing. Or thank you for answering my questions about this particular patient. It, it would be a little bit more concise than that, but it would be an acknowledgement for their work. But if somebody went in and, for example, my students have done a lot of data collection and spent hours and hours looking through patient charts, and for example, with the project that we recently submitted, by the way, congratulations, it is now been Yes. But you spent a very long time calling all the patients and trying to get them scheduled for the actual testing. And in my mind, that directly made the project be able to happen. And so that is why I felt strongly that you should have authorship in that project. The order of the authors, there's a little bit of difference between what setting you're in as far as what the choices of the order of the authors. But so I'll just speak to my experience and what I have heard and how I generally organize authorship on my papers. Generally speaking, the first author is the one that wrote the bulk of the manuscript, did the final edits, and is the corresponding author for the submission. The corresponding author means that they went through the manuscript submission process, they organized every chart and table and file, and they answered all the editor's questions. They probably were lead on the review process. If any of the reviewers wanted edits done to the paper, then they were the first line doing that. That is who I think of as the initial author on the paper. Corresponding means that the editor is going to be contacting that person first in order to get a response. Who I understand is the last author on the paper is generally the primary investigator on the study, the person for whom the study would not happen without. They were the main person in charge. They probably oversaw the entire project. They were probably still extremely involved 
in the process. And again, that study absolutely could not have happened whatsoever without that person. The way I order authors in between is I look at the amount of contribution. And if there is a larger contribution to the study, I generally have them more towards the front of the author list. And if there was a smaller contribution, I generally have them more towards the back of the author list. And the reason why I do that is you'll note in citations, oftentimes it's the first author at all, or it's the first, second, and third author at all. And so that way, the people who were really involved in the study get that recognition, even though it's on the reference list and it's absolutely on the study, it's nice to see your name referenced. Thank you. That cleared up a lot of questions that I had about that process. So question for you again. I know we talked about potentially a research project in the future and presenting on it. And our mutual project that we just talked about and the author list has been presented twice now and, of course, submitted for publication. How do you think those two different presentations differed? One was with our master's program where you presented, and the other was for CAFRA, which is also a university-level presentation. Yeah, so one of the main differences between the two was the audience. So the MPO presentation that I did, the audience was our first and second year students, some of our clinicians, and then some outside clinicians that had either helped work on the project or were there for continuing education credits. The time that I had to present was also shorter. I think it was maybe like 15 minutes. So I know in the presentation, I didn't discuss the results as thoroughly as you did during the CAPRA presentation. Because at CAPRA, you had a longer time to present. You had the time to really dive deep into the results. The CAPRA audience was a lot different as well, where you had the whole school of health professions, physical therapy, PA, nutrition, the research department. You had all the students and the professors for each of these programs there. So it was just a, a different audience and then the time. Yeah, the audience could definitely make a difference. And it's interesting how the presentations, you mentioned the time constraints. You have to always shape your presentation based on what that particular conference is asking for. So what do you think the difference is between the presentations and the manuscript we recently submitted? Yeah, so that goes back down to not really time, but also space. Like in a manuscript, we're going into really fine detail. We're presenting the information where it's easy to read versus presenting information where you can verbally express it well. There's differences there, but the similarities, we're discussing the same thing. We're discussing our clinical question, our hypotheses, our methods, what we did, our results. In the manuscript, you go more in detail into the statistical analysis and then a lot more detail in the discussion section. But again, that's just what a manuscript is supposed to have versus what a presentation is supposed to have. If we did a presentation that was exactly like a manuscript, it may not reach the audience as well as we wanted it to. That's great differences to point out, and it really shows 
the difference between a presentation and a manuscript and different types of presentations. And then also we talked about posters. It would be even different for a poster. Yeah. I also want to take just a moment to go back to something we had discussed earlier, which is nerves coming up to a presentation. It is totally normal to be nervous about it, to worry about Q&A. My heart still flutters every time I go up for a presentation, whether it's just in front of my department, whether it's in front of physicians during an in-service, or if it's in front of a huge audience, a national or international audience. So that is completely normal. And even though it does somewhat get easier as you do more of it, those nerves are still completely normal. So I just want to encourage anyone listening, and of course you as well, to try. Submit your abstracts and see what happens. I think that's great advice, especially you've done at least 30 presentations in your career. And it's comforting to hear that even after 30, like you still get those butterflies. Absolutely. So that wraps up part two of the publication process, putting your best foot forward. Thanks again for joining us, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of ONP Rising. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with seasoned ONP professionals as they share candid insights on topics relevant to those interested in starting on the right foot when it comes to a career in ONP. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for ONP professionals. The award-winning ONP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and ONP Clinical Insiders with Academy Scientific Society's Chair, Seth O'Brien, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at onp.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.